Well, if you have your Bibles, uh, turn to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. We are uh, continuing our way through the Sermon on the Mount. And this morning we're in Matthew 5, uh, verses 33 to 37. And um, if you don't have your Bible with you or don't have uh, your smartphone and a Bible app or any other means of, of opening God's Word, uh, the verses that we are going to be in are also provided in your bulletin uh, right there, Matthew five thirty-three to 37. So whatever way, whatever manner, however you must get God's Word open in front of you, I encourage you. Uh, to do it and uh, uh, follow along as we carefully, uh, by God's mercy, faithfully make our way through his text and hear from our God. We hear words spoken by Jesus, yet in the supernatural power of the Holy Spirit, the supernatural power of God at work in his people, he has designed and orchestrated it so that his word would be minister to us with the same authority, with the same power, with the same importance as when Jesus Christ spoke himself. Oh, thank you. Just in case it falls, huh? <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, Matthew 5, uh, 33 to 37. Um, but let me pray and ask God's hand upon us as we open up the word this morning. Would you pray with me? God, as we open your word, we ask that you would you would do a work in us. You would do a work in us in showing us how our words, how our commitments uh, must bring glory to you and must bring honor to you. And Lord, where we feel as if we come short on this or where we feel as if we have much room to grow, we pray that you would show us our Savior, show us the sufficiency of our Christ and help us to trust in, hope in, and rely fully upon him. So, Lord, in this, would you help us to see Christ? Would you help us to understand ourselves? And would you help us to grow to the glory of your name? We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. I don't know if you're familiar or aware of this, but there is, is an election uh, that is going on. I, I, there's a lot going on in the news. I thought maybe that might have slipped by some of you, maybe not. Um, Amanda and I actually got our ballots. Uh, we did the very risky thing of voting by mail. Um, this year, and um, that was intended to be a slight joke, um, but uh, we got our ballots in the mail uh, a week ago, and so we uh, opened them up, and we started looking through them, and we did what all good voters do. We pulled up Google to look up what exactly some of these offices are, and to learn a little more about some of these candidates and some of the questions on the ballots, and so once we got all that done, we marked them up, and there were places where Amanda and I agreed in how we voted. There were places where we voted differently, um, I'd be willing to tell you exactly how we voted on every single question if you'd like to know. Um, just kidding. Um, but uh, as, I was, as I was doing this, and then as I was walking our ballots back out to the mailbox, to put them in the mailbox, I, I was thinking to myself, in this very unprecedented year, in this very unprecedented time, this very unprecedented election, that, that's probably grammatically incorrect to say very unprecedented. Some, something is just unprecedented. Um, I don't know about you, but I'm ready for precedented times again. Uh, I'm tired of unprecedented. But anyway, in an unprecedented election, it dawned on me that there are a lot of people with very, very difficult jobs in the midst of an election, especially an election this year. There are town clerks and election commissioners and election commissions that 
on, on top of all the normal things they do with a regular election, have to deal with all the voting by mail and make sure everything's handled correctly, the right forms go out to the right people, all the roles are kept up to date, all of that. There are uh, mailmen and mailwomen in the U.S. Postal Service who are under a lot of scrutiny to make sure that they get ballots to where they're supposed to be and when they're supposed to be there. And a lot of people think that that could go haywire. I don't really understand that, given how much they handle every year during the holidays. And generally, they do a really good job of it. But anyway, there's, they're under the magnifying glass a little bit uh, to make sure they do it right. Then there's a lot of these candidates. As I was Googling and looking at the positions that uh, some of these offices hold, and I'm not just talking about president, but I'm talking about uh, positions on a more local or regional level. Some of these positions, I was reading about them, and I was like, why would anybody want to do this? But you know what I think is the hardest job that anyone has in the midst of this election season? Fact checker. You may have seen after debates or after big national campaign events that news organizations, TV stations, newspapers, or websites, they'll have uh, uh, fact checkers that come on and are supposed to call balls and strikes on, on whether or not what a candidate said is true or not true. So if in a debate one candidate says that another candidate is going to raise your taxes and going to kill grandma's health care and abolish uh, ownership of uh, small household pets across the country, a fact checker comes on later and says, well, this candidate was wrong in saying this. They, they were right that candidate B might raise your taxes a little bit, but they were wrong that it's, that, that it's going to harm health care and yada, 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 yada. And I don't know about you, but there's been a lot of times throughout this election cycle where it's been hard to know whether or not candidates are being truthful. In fact, it hasn't been hard to know. <laughs> So calling those balls and strikes, saying what is actually true as to what candidate A or B has said, the positions they have taken, fact checkers have their hands full. And you know, sometimes we look at politicians and we think that they're just full of lies, that, 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 that they need fact checkers because they can't, they, if they, tr they would try to tell you that two plus two equals seven. They would try to tell you the sky is green. They would try to tell you anything that isn't the truth. But, you know, I don't think politicians are the only ones that need fact-checkers. I think we all need fact-checkers. You ever struggle with telling the truth? Maybe you, you don't struggle with telling the truth. Maybe you struggle with, like me, just keeping your word. Maybe whenever you made a commitment, you intended on fulfilling it. But then life or circumstances made that faithfulness to that commitment all the more difficult. And you need a fact checker to come in and tell you where you were wrong. Well, this morning, Jesus is in one way going to be our fact checker. But in a far more significant, far more important way than a fact checker would with any kind of election that we would deal with. In fact, listen to Jesus in Matthew 5, 33 to 37, as he addresses how we ought to understand our words, and particularly the commitments that we make to others. Follow along as I read. Jesus says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, 
for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. So here's what I'm going to hold before you of what Jesus is showing us. When we make empty promises, when our word is not reliable, we blaspheme against God and act in evil. Therefore, we must strive to be true and reliable in our speech. Let me say that again. When we make empty promises and our word is not reliable, we blaspheme against God and act in evil. Therefore, we must be true and reliable in our speech. We're going to see two things in this passage as we make our way through it. We're going to see two ways of breaking it down. First, our careless words. And secondly, Christ's command for our words. So first, our careless words. And then second, Christ's command for our words. First, here's what I mean by our careless words. We have a tendency, we have a, 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 a part of our nature as human beings that we like to play intellectual twister and kind of bend our way out of commitments that we make, out of promises that we give ourselves to. We like to bend our way out of them so as that we maybe aren't held entirely responsible for what we said we would do because we are finding loopholes and finding avenues whereby we don't have to be faithful to that which we've said. How often do we say things that we don't really mean? Let's be honest. How often do we say things that we don't really mean? Whether it's a job or a task or a responsibility that we promise that we will accomplish. Think about this. I, I, I saw early on in the uh, early days of pandemic and quarantine uh, that there was a national crisis, not just a health crisis, but there were a whole lot of husbands who bills were coming due on telling their wives, honey, I'll get to it when I have time. Decades of saying that, and all of a sudden you can't go anywhere and it's time. But don't we do that? We say, oh, I'll get to this, I'll do this, or oh yeah, I'll make sure to do this, and charitably we're, we're slow to it. Or we make commitments about something we will attend, something we will make sure to show up for. Think about it, when we ask, get asked to be to go do something or to be somewhere, we say, sure, but when the time comes, we think, oh, I don't want to do that. I said I'd go, but I didn't want to offend so-and-so when they asked, but now let's see here. What, let me go through the Rolodex in my mind of possible excuses I can give to get out of attending this function. So we go through that Rolodex and we say, well, I could say I'm tired, but no, I did that one last week. We say, oh, I had a long day at work. Well, no, that one was, eh, I kind of have a long day at work every day. You can say, well, I've got a busy day tomorrow, and I've got to get A, B, and C done. I've got to get the kids' lunches done. I've got to make sure homework's done. I've got to make sure all these things are done before tomorrow. No, I said that one two weeks ago. So maybe we should just tell the truth. Hey, look, I'm sorry. I hastily committed because I perpetually live in fear of what other people are going to think of me, so I don't want to let anyone down, and I want to do everything I can to impress them at all times, even if that means I drive myself into the ground wanting to impress them with how I manage my time. Nah, that one doesn't work either. This speaks to us a little bit, doesn't it? We sometimes treat our words less like our bond. Here's what Jesus is showing us. We sometimes treat our words less like our bond and more like those terms and conditions boxes on websites that you check like, hey, I have read this, I agree to that. You, nobody ever reads those. Nobody ever agrees to those, but we just check the box. We say what we need to say to move on to the next step. 
You might think you're given over to this or you're not given over to this, but I think oftentimes we all struggle with our mouths writing checks that our hearts are unable to cash. The illustration I'd use to highlight this point is how often do we add some extra spice to our commitment, some extra promise to solidify that we really mean that we will be faithful with this thing. So when we actually do plan on showing up, when we actually do plan on keeping our promises, we say, oh, I swear I'll be there. I swear I'll do this. We even say, I swear to God I'm telling the truth. But Jesus holds before us here. And he says that the oaths that you mean to communicate, that you really mean the truth, they're quite pointless and they're even blasphemous. This is what he's addressing here with his audience. In fact, read it again with me. Follow along as I read. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. So pause. Here's what Jesus is addressing with his audience. In Jesus' day, the Jewish religious authorities and people, they had a legalistic system centered around the Old Testament law, this legalistic system, these writings were called the Mishnah. And there was an entire section of the Mishnah about oaths, including specific explanations about when oaths were binding and when oaths were not so binding and you could get out of them. So if someone were to swear an oath, I'm not making this up, if they were to swear an oath by the temple of God, like they were to say, I promise you I will do this, I, I promise you on the very temple of God, then they actually had some wiggle room to get out of that oath. But if they swore an oath by the gold of the temple, then they were binding themselves to fulfill that oath. They said, I promise I will do this. I I will make sure to do this. I commit to you by the very gold of the temple of God. Then that was an oath that was viewed as legally binding. In fact, if you don't want to take my word for it, go look at it in Matthew chapter 23, verses 16 to 22. Feel free to go look at that later today. Matthew 23, 16 to 22. Jesus addresses this very kind of thing this verbal sleight of hand that we can be given to when our mouths commit to things that we cannot ourselves fulfill. And this is where Scripture just grabs hold of us, or grabs hold of me at least, because one of the incredible things about how Jesus, and therefore God, if he spoke spoke through the apostles, through the prophets, through other speakers in Scripture, whoever else, how he speaks to the essence of our human nature and that he reveals that we aren't much different than our ancestors 2,000 years ago that Jesus is speaking to. Right? And we even teach this to our children. We say there's the truth, and then there's the truth where I cross my heart and hope to die. The real truth. But Jesus is saying our Empty commitments, our empty oaths, promises, they don't water the ground of our hearts that we can grow in holiness. These oaths cut holes in the bottom of the pot so that any water that comes into us to grow in holiness drains out and we're starved of spiritual growth. We starve ourselves for the sake of personal convenience. See, one thing Jesus is showing us in the sermon on the, in, the early, in these early pages of the Sermon on the Mount, as well as specifically how we address our words, or how we understand our words, is that 
we are actually easily given over to serve a more pressing God than the God of the Bible, and that's the God of our own personal convenience. An example of that is the last thing we want to have is an uncomfortable conversation, so we just say, I'll say what I need to say, and then I'll worry about how I get out of it later. But he holds up to us that this is, as he says, it's evil in verse 37, and it's a sin that dishonors God. And it demeans those who are deceived by our smooth talking and our callous disregard for what we've told them. Strange, right? You think, what are all the ways in which I need to grow as a follower of Christ? Maybe read my Bible more. Maybe watch a little less Netflix, read a little more theology or read a little more church history or whatever maybe participate in a bible study all good things but jesus addressing our hearts says you know another way that you can grow in holiness is that your word mean what you say it is if you go read through the six examples that jesus gives of how the law of god instructs us to treat others with anger, with lust, with divorce, with our speech, with retribution, with loving our enemies. You know what binds them all together? The law that Jesus is writing on our hearts is love for one another. You see, what Jesus is getting at is that there was a, a tendency, in fact, far beyond a tendency, an outright devotion on the part of many of his hearers who considered them to be very religious, very faithful people, to do everything that they could to make themselves, to, to have themselves on the same page with God. So God says, don't murder, I'm not going to murder. God says, don't commit adultery, I'm not going to commit adultery. God says, uh, uh, make sure to, if I'm going to divorce, divorce in a, in a proper manner. God says, uh, uh, you know, if, here's the ways that you can make an oath without lying, without breaking your word. If you have to break the oath, then loving your enemies and retribution towards others and all these things what Jesus comes before us and says is that the law is not given for you and God to so as to be a means by which you can feel comfortable in yourself as you, as you waste away on the inside but look holy on the outside. The law is given in order to foster and to grow your hearts in love and mercy towards one another. All of these are about how we treat and interact with others. And so you want to show what Jesus is saying. You want to show your love for God? Are you a man or woman of your word? You want to show your care for your fellow man, for your fellow church member. Are you a man or woman of your word? And then he says, if you're not, don't come along and think that you're keeping some strange oath to me and all is looking up in the world. You know, one, one fascinating thing about Christianity about going to church, about life as a Christian, let me know if you've ever seen this kind of thing, is that we try to put limits on, we try to put God in a box or a, a, a yard or a confined space where God stay, has to stay where he is and we, we kind of come and go as we please. So we, try, we tell ourselves that we're, when we're around that space, then God is concerned with us, but when we're not, then everything's okay. So consider this, how often... Maybe as a teenager or, or, or whatever, even, even today, do you consider your words more significant when you're 
in the church or, 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 or with Christians? You know, how often do you say, oh, don't say that, you're in church? Or how often do, do we think, don't, don't do that, or, or don't, don't commit to that, or, or don't talk that way? God hears you when you're in this building. That might be how you view God. As if he's confined to a space and to a time for an hour or hour and a half on Sunday morning. And other than that, he has no claim over you or he doesn't care. But Jesus says he actually does. And Jesus says that this God who is sovereign over us is not a God who is only concerned with us for a short time each week. And only concerned with us as long as our words bend and work and move around the right way in order to prevent ourselves from conflict or trouble. In fact, if you look at, look at these verses again, look at verses 33 and 34. Look at, look at verse 34, excuse me. I want you to see something here. Jesus says, I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is, a footstool, or it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. In saying this, Jesus is actually alluding to, he's quoting back from Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1, when Isaiah talks about, uh, or, or God tells through Isaiah to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, he tells them they want to build a temple for him, they want to build something mighty for him, and he says, what are you going to build for me that I don't have? He says, what are you going to build for me that I don't have for... Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. There is nothing that is beyond my reach. And what Jesus is coming in and saying here is, what are you going to say that is outside the reach of God? Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. Jerusalem, the city, this holy city that you focus so much on, it is my city. There is no, nothing about your words that is outside the reign and the rule of of God. He's basically saying don't swear by God or anything associated with God in heaven or on earth or under the earth. It's all God's himself. And don't swear by yourself either. You see verse 36, and do not take an oath by your head for you cannot make one hair white or black. This kind of taking an oath by your head was essentially saying like I'd bet my life on it. But what Jesus is saying is they're showing us is that that, that before modern hair care products, which are not a product of his time, we don't even have the capability to color our hair. We can't make one hair black. We can't make one hair white. We can't keep one hair in our head as we bald. He's saying you're not nearly as powerful and as authoritative as you imagine yourself to be. So Jesus wants us to cut the empty promises, cut the careless commitments out of our vernacular, because he's concerned with the cleanliness of our hearts. And out of the abundance of the heart, our mouths commit. And out of the abundance of our heart, we seek our way out of our commitments. So cut out the corrupting talk. Start doing your work honestly and truthfully. And may reliability begin to ooze out from under you. In fact, this is what he says as he gives his command for our words. Verse 37, let what you say Simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. When I say he's concerned with our hearts, remember what I believe this passage sets out before us. Remember what it calls us to. When we make empty promises and our word is not reliable, we blaspheme against God, we act in evil. Therefore, we must be true and reliable in our speech. 
you realize that for those of us who profess the name of Christ, that in one sense when we cannot be trusted, we are communicating to those that don't trust us, that can't trust us, that our God cannot be trusted. And yet when we are people of truth, when we are people of reliability, of faithfulness to that which we say, We communicate that our God is a God of truth. Our God is a God of reliability. Our God is a God who is faithful to us. And beyond that, those who we speak to, those who we commit to, those who we give our promises to, we are communicating to them the importance by which we see them, the importance by which we approach them, And the manner by which to keep our word is to value them and to place significance on their times, on their needs, and on their hearts. So let's play a little self-examination here. And these are going to get all of us, okay? Some of us, many times, maybe it's a few. I had one this week, okay? So first question here, as we consider our lives with one another and the commitments we make, Maybe the most basic in a church setting is when you tell somebody how often, when when you tell somebody, uh, maybe they share something they're going through, a hard time they're experiencing, and they say, you know, and and they share that with you, and you say, oh, I'll pray for you. Do you pray for them? You just say it to them because it's kind of the churchy thing to say, and you don't really know what else to say. I had an instance this week. I won't say who, but a church member. I was text messaging with this uh, person, and, and uh, it was kind of late one evening, and I said to this person, I, they, they, were, they were sharing some things that were on their mind, on their heart, and I said, well, hey, that water, I tell you. They, say, they, they said, uh, I, I said to them, we'll say, I'll give you a call tomorrow, and, and we'll talk about it further. Did I call them? No. Time got away from me. And so I was talking to them last night, and I said, you realize you're going to be illustration number one in this sermon of how I don't measure up to this sometimes. But may we strive that when we make a commitment to one another, that we strive to pursue that commitment and pursue faithfulness to that commitment. Think about our church covenant. Corporately, we have committed to walk alongside of one another in the faith. It's a significant part of church membership. We've covenanted together as a church. If you're unfamiliar with our church covenant, you can go find it on our church website. I think it's under the About Us tab and then Church Covenant. You can go read it. And this is something that all of those who are members of our church family have committed to together. And so I just pulled a couple of examples of this. How often, how well do we pray for and work for unity together in the Spirit? How well do we admonish one another when we go wayward? Are we willing to pursue the brother or sister who we see going in a direction of maybe maybe giving themselves over towards sin or towards something that is perhaps blinding to them of the spiritual consequence and danger of it are we willing to go after the wayward like we have covenant together to do are we willing to love a brother or sister enough to allow our yes of covenanting together to mean that we will reach out to him or her when we see them dangerously toying with sin even if it brings a hard and difficult conversation does the yes of our covenant together mean enough that we will go sit down with our brother or sister who's grieving in sorrow or who needs the encouragement of being prayed for and talked with as they are walking through a dark season of life and struggling with great questions of the faith. 
you know, one thing about maturity as a follower of Christ, as he's addressing, is that it is not found in great accolades. It is not found in, in many degrees. It is not found in uh, uh, incredible accomplishments. It's found in faithfulness and reliability. If you're a young Christian, if you're a young Christian who is still sorting through things, you don't know much of your Bible, you don't know much of, of, of still all what that it means to follow Christ, to still from Jesus' words in verse 37, if your yes means yes, if your no is no, if you're a person of faithfulness and reliability in your speech, you're off to a great start. But even beyond this, if you're a young person, junior high, high school, college, you know, you think of ways in which you want to make your applications for jobs or school or, 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 or you want to pursue accomplishments in life, you want to grow into a healthy, well-rounded adult, did you know one of the great ways in which you can become a healthy, well-rounded adult that will stand out from others is to be reliable. To be honest. Because honesty is not in vogue. Reliability is not in vogue in our day and age. How often do we tell Uncle Sam that we made one amount of money when in fact we made a different amount of money? We don't want to pay as much taxes as we ought. Now, I'd be entirely and completely remiss if I did not step back and say that there are some of us who we talk about this and you carry the scars of broken promises. Terms like reliability, terms like faithfulness, terms like commitment, terms, like, uh, terms that reveal our care for other people. You carry scars from that. You carry the scars of marriage vows that were broken. You carry the pain of a job promise that was committed to you and was reneged upon. You carry the memories, the painful memories, the, the, the taunting, horrible memories of a parent who should have been a place of safety and mercy, but they were unreliable and your childhood felt like one broken promise after another. Or perhaps you even carry the burden of fellow Christians or even pastors who have let you down in not living up to the commitments that they have made to you. So when it comes to truthfulness, when it comes to faithfulness, these are hard terms to grasp because your reservoir of experiences to pull on from those is quite empty. Well, may I encourage you and may I encourage all of us as we carry the not only these, but perhaps carry the weight of thinking, man, my words oftentimes do not measure up. I'm a person that is easy on commitment and difficult on follow-through. Our Lord Jesus has promised us that he will return for his church. Our Lord Jesus has promised us his continued faithful presence towards us, that we will be with him enjoying his presence in eternal bliss as mercy and peace and the faithfulness of God will be the air that we breathe throughout eternity with him. And do you know what he has sealed that promise with? He has sealed that promise with his very blood. As he has died for our sins, as he has atoned for our rebellion against God, he has sealed the promise of his commitment to redeem us, to rescue us, 
and to bring us to new life in Him. He has atoned for this, and He has set us apart, and He has said, you can trust me, and He shows us this in His own life shed for our sins. And do you know what you can have to know that you have these promises of God that will never grow old and will never be forsaken, not even the smallest one of them? You have His Word. We have, as His people, His Word. You realize that as we open this up week by week, as you open this up in your uh, time in God's Word, day by day, you are opening up a book of the promises of God. You are opening up a book that tells you, even though the world around you might not keep its Word, God's Word is faithful and true. As you hold your Bible in your hand, you hold the very promises of God before you. This is why we open God's Word week by week. We read from it. This is why we open God's Word week by week. We pray and and we cite it. This is why we open God's Word week by week and, and we preach from it. It's because in a world that needs fact checkers, as people that need fact checkers, as people that have to say, oh, this time I really mean the truth, cross my heart and hope to die, I swear I'll really be there, I swear I'll live up to it, as people that need fact-checkers in a world that needs fact-checkers, God's Word is reliable and true. Because it shares with us our Lord who is reliable and true. And it shares with us the work that He has done in atoning for our sins and our unreliability, our untruthfulness, all of our broken promises, all of our broken commitments, our Lord ties them all up in the promise and the commitment of His blood shed for our sin and the new life that He has given us by His power. So my friend, when you feel as if the promises made to you or the promises you make to other are, others are lacking and you feel as if your reservoir of faithfulness and reliability, whether from others or from you towards others, when you feel as if that is empty, Avail yourself of the promises of God. And know that even if you carry those scars of the pains of your sin, of the pains of sins of others against you as they have broken their word, know that Christ's word is sure. And know that He will be faithful and true and good to us. We live in hope that Christ will come again for us because we look back at God's faithfulness to us. God who promised over the course of centuries, even millennia, to atone for sin and to bring His people to Himself, He has done that in Christ. And so let us never grow tired of reminding ourselves of God's promises and of living in hope in these promises. And may this shape the promises and the commitments that we make as people who profess to be the people of God. Let's pray. God, as your people, we pray that as you convict us of where we lack in faithfulness, we pray that you would set our hearts upon yourself set our parts upon Christ who is faithful. And Lord, I pray that if there's any here who do not know you, who, who, who feel as if 
life is simply full of circumstances and people and relationships and hardships and trusting others, would you show them, open your arms to them and bring them to you who are, you who are, is always faithful, is always true. Jesus Christ Himself, who is the example of your Old Testament promises um, that have been made and shows us in His life, in His death, in His resurrection, that these promises have been kept. And so now we as your people can trust in Him as we live in light of the promise of His reign, His rule, and His return. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.